This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the tail end of Season 5. My name is David Dalton. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I teach at Loyola's Institute for Pastoral Studies, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine, and I'm here with my friend Father Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a regular columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, it's always a pleasure. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a little bit of bonus audio and extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod and become a monthly supporter of the show. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Please also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. And once again, that's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. All right, today we're going to be talking about three different topics. We're going to be talking about the democracy protests in Hong Kong. We're going to be talking about the recent speech by Attorney General William Barr at Notre Dame University. And we're going to be talking about whether or not baptizing fictional aliens is okay. So we're going to be dipping our toes into the Baby Yoda controversy. But uh, for now, though, let's do a little bit of checking in. Dan, how are you? David, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad it's Thanksgiving week. As listeners, even if they're not in the formal academic world, may recall from previous years that this is the most theological time of the year. <laughs> I just got back from uh, San Diego where the annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion, uh, concurrently with the Society of Biblical Literature, the two sort of, as, as you know, we're both members, largest guilds, uh, professional societies of, of religion scholars and scripture scholars internationally come together. It's, it's, it's something like 10,000, uh, multiples of thousands of, of theologians and sociologists and anthropologists and historians and all that kind of stuff. And also swag sellers, books and totes yes. and other things. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. The, the kind of takeaway, it's not a cheap convention, but I think compared to something like law conferences and dentist conventions and stuff, it's probably more affordable. But the big sort of takeaway, the big swag is the bag, the swag bag. There is a tote that comes out every year that you get with your registration. And, it, you know, you can spot the theologians and religion scholars all around and the grad students carrying their totes. One of the things I, I most appreciated and, and found very endearing when I moved to Chicago four years ago and joined the faculty of CTU was here in Hyde Park, we are in a disproportionately high a percentage of theologians and Bible scholars and religion scholars because we have the University of Chicago Divinity School here. We have about six seminaries, including Catholic Theological Union, uh, the Lutheran School of Theology, where we are right now. 
And so, I, you know, you go to the grocery store and people are packing up their groceries in AAR tote bags. And and I love it. Can't get enough of it. Did you give a paper? I didn't this year. No, no. Smart person that you are. I know. I, I went through a, a kind of insane period where three years in a row I presented and I presented over the course of those three years, five papers, which meant two of those three years I presented at two sessions, which is, it's a lot. It's a lot. So I've taken a little bit of a break. I eye the, um, the call every year to see if there's anything I'm working on that, that fits really well, that wouldn't require a whole lot of additional departure from what I'm, whatever my research agenda is at the time. Nothing's really caught my attention. But, but it, is a, it is a who's who. It's kind of a, a command performance for people you know, and the downside is it's it's intense and it's big and it's crowded and it's it can at times be pretentious as academic things can be. And that part is not always very appealing. And you can you know, you get kind of your duds of paper sometimes in sessions. And so it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. But there are, you know, it's a command performance on the one hand because it's the place where everybody is once a year in the field. It's always the weekend before Thanksgiving. But it's also a command performance if you're an author because all of the academic publishers are there. And so, you know, if you need – if you're working on a project and you want to pitch an idea and you want to meet with an editor, that's where you do it. If you are currently an author and you're under contract and you, <laughs> you need to talk with your editor or catch up, that kind of stuff happens. So, you know, I'm, I've published books or am publishing books with a number of publishers that are there. And so it's good to check in with, with the different – editors of mine and and that was good and the best part of all is connecting with friends and colleagues and going out to dinner and going to receptions and uh, having drinks and catching up and and that's really really great too because you know that pretty much everybody will be there I mean you can see folks at least once a year I know you've gone many many years it's been a few since since you've been there but I'm hearing from our chatter that there might be adult return. Yeah. So I, like you said, I, I, I spent almost 20 years going to the, to this conference and because of circumstances and because I had pretty much gone out of academia for a number of years, I have not gone back. I am thinking that next year it's going to be in Boston, your old stomping grounds. And I'm, I like Boston. I think it's a fun city. And I'm thinking that, uh, if the, if the stars align and there's enough money in the coffers, I'm going to try and go back next year. And again, the main reason is exactly as you said, it's to reconnect with people that are very dear to me that I only really ever see once a year at this event. And so that's that's the main reason is the relationship reason. I, I've got nothing of a career <laughs> in academia, and so I've got nothing to defend in terms of giving papers or, or I think trying, that's a bit of a misleading exaggeration. Trying to network, but I well, but I, let's at least say I don't have. In a, if you look at it through traditional lenses, I don't look like a traditional academic. That being said, Fair, yeah. I do have professional relationships to maintain there as well with publishers and with and with people who are rising in the guild. And so you know that that's that is not to be overlooked, but. The main reason that I would go would be exactly what you said, that I just have some dear friends that I would love to see again. It's kind of like, you know, just off air, we were chatting about this. AAR is sort of the academic version of L.A. Congress. It's, mm -hmm. it's comparable in size. It's a similar sort of setup where there's an exhibit hall where a lot of people are meeting and connecting and buying things. I, I was very good. I only bought three books this year. It's not even true. I bought two books and a publisher gave me a book. Um, that's one of the perks of being an author is that sometimes they just give you things. And not to make a patch on AARSBL, but I will say that the worship is much better at LA Congress. That is the most understated understatement that's ever existed. Um, <laughs> I will say, yeah, I mean, there is a certain irony that there it, you can be hard-pressed to find the liturgies of various denominations during AAR. I mean, it takes place over a weekend. It's a Saturday to Tuesday. The College Theology Society, which is a Catholic professional guild, they host a, a Catholic mass on Saturday evening, the vigil mass every year. And it's, it's, it's really – it's kind of endearing because it's, it's whoever kind of shows up, they get a presider. There's, there's a colleague of mine who um, teaches at a school in Connecticut who kind of ad hoc – leads us in song and and it's kind of bare bones. It was so funny because during the Eucharistic prayer, you know, you're in one of these hotel conference rooms 
during the Eucharistic prayer, the lights all of a sudden went down and the kind of house music in the the speakers, not like the PA system they were using for the liturgy, but but like the, the speakers up high in the ceiling started blasting this kind of dance music. Holy Spirit, baby. It was That's the epiclesis right there. It was. It was <laughs> wild. And <laughs> yeah, that's, you're right. No, you, no one knows where the spirit will will blow. And there you go. Yeah. How are other things going, dude? Uh, it well, I the last time that we gathered for a Francis effect, I mentioned that uh, I was trying to do a lot of self care because there was the possibility of kind of a massive emotional train wreck, and that did indeed hit between last taping and this taping. And I'm okay. Uh, I'm well supported, and my family's okay. But it was it was a very rough week. The last week before today when we're taping, both professionally and personally. And I just want to say again to anybody that's listening, uh, rest and having people around you that you can be very transparent and honest with and uh, good mechanisms for recovery, whether we're talking about 12-step or some other kind of supportive professional relationship of therapy, all of those things are vital, vital parts of of a modern life. And I I'm going to be very clear and say I have availed myself of all of those in the last seven days, and I would encourage anyone to do that as well, because sometimes life gets hard, and you are not expected to shoulder all the burden. But that, that's that been the main thing. It's just been, it's been, it's been a very, very busy semester, and that has taken a toll on my family and on me, and we are all very, very glad that things are going to be lightening up and we get a chance to actually sit in the same room together and just be a family for a while because we've missed each other. That's that's really important. Well, you know, uh, you obviously know certainly off air how how much I'm with you in this and in supporting you in prayer and, and in other ways that I can. And, and I know how grateful you are. I certainly am, too, to our listeners who through Twitter and other things will reach out to us and, and uh, you know, express their kind of solidarity, their unity in the communion of saints and prayer. And I think it's a good time, you know, that that sharing just then, David, is really important for a lot of folks because, you know, we're, we're coming upon Thanksgiving. By the time this podcast comes out, it'll be a couple of days past Thanksgiving, but we'll be well into the first week of Advent. So Christmas is around the corner. It's a time of great joy for a lot of people, but it's also a time of incredible stress. Um, and sometimes, you know, families are not the place where people are relaxed or restful, but um, but for a number of reasons may find that increasingly anxiety inducing. So, so no, at least from from our perspective, we're uh, we're joined with you, and we appreciate your prayers and support, and uh, we wish you all the best. And I echo David's exhortation to self care. You need to create the space. You need to avail yourself of the things that are necessary. I know how much I appreciate that. And I echo Dan's uh, best wishes and prayers for all of you who are listening for your holidays and for your families. And with that, maybe we should get into the show. So you're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss things. Lots of things, political things, cultural things, Star Wars things, and we do so from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. In early October, Attorney General William Barr was invited to speak at the University of Notre Dame just down the road from us in South Bend, Indiana. The talk lasted a little less than an hour, and it sought to build the case that for the last 50 years, religion in America has been under constant attack and that the forces of secularism have been winning. In the weeks since, the speech has been criticized by a number of commentators and legal scholars, including some who are on the faculty at Notre Dame. Patricia Hackett, an adjunct professor at the school and a Democratic congressional candidate, argued that, quote, Mr. Barr's analysis of religious freedom is inconsistent with his duties as the sitting attorney general of the United States, unquote. Hackett went on to say she has, quote, never read or heard remarks from a government official in the United States that were so inaccurate and disturbing, unquote. So let's let's dig into this. Let's untangle what exactly is going on here. And David, uh, give us give us an update. Well, so the full text of the speech is available online, and we'll try and link to it in the show notes. And so I encourage people to go and look at it or to listen to it. But basically, what is going on here is Barr is doing kind of a ramble, and it's a ramble not really of what we would call judicial history. It's a ramble of some culture war talking points. 
and it's high brow culture war talking points, but it doesn't really have an accurate anchor in a lot of the things that happen. And let me let me just focus on one particular thing. So he mentions about two thirds of the way through this talk, he begins to talk about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And he, I'm just going to read two parts of it. So he says, quote, in 1993, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA. The purpose of the statute was to promote maximum accommodation to religion when the government adopted broad policies that could impinge on religious practice. At the time, RIFRA was not controversial. It was introduced by Chuck Schumer with 170 co-sponsors in the House and was introduced by Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch with 59 additional co-sponsors in the Senate. It passed by voice vote in the House and by a vote of 97 to 3 in the Senate, unquote. Okay, you can look at that and say, ah, yes, because of those numbers, because of everything else, it was uncontroversial. That so completely glosses over all of the context, the actual history, and the contention that was going on around the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which arose because of a decision that we've talked about before, Employment Division v. Smith, where Antonin Scalia struck down basically the First Amendment protection for for religious practice. Like, there was so much contention around this at the time, and he doesn't really point out the fact that Riffer was struck down not once but twice by Sandra Day O'Connor in the Supreme Court. So... This is just one example of Barr kind of playing fast and loose with the history and in doing so, painting a narrative that sounds great to a certain conservative mindset that thinks we're under attack, we're under attack, but doesn't really deal with the complexity that we have to sort of bring into the conversation. I also think it's a bill of goods Mm. um, in, in that the language of religious freedom being under attack is a trope that's been used not just by politicians like Bill Barr, who is... Uh, is a Catholic. He's a self-identified Catholic, but by a number of Catholic leaders. And this was kind of reached a pinnacle during the debates around the Affordable Care Act and certain uh, exemptions that were sought or first you know, kind of blanket opposition. And then once it was realized that Obamacare wasn't going anywhere, certain exemptions around uh, birth control, around abortion access and these sorts of things. And the language that was adopted as the umbrella was this religious freedom, as if the government, because of the law that was trying to make possible health coverage for everybody, that somehow Catholics' ability to exercise their religious freedom was infringed upon. And and the truth is, is, that is just patently false. What really was infringed upon was a particular denomination, in this case our own, Roman Catholics in the U.S., at least its its leaders in certain parts of the country, their ability to impose their traditions onto others through employment and so forth was actually what was infringed upon. Nobody was saying through the Affordable Care Act or any other law, at least in the last 50 years in the United States, that, oh, Catholics can't gather to celebrate the Mass or priests can't wear their Roman collars or religious habits on in public, which was a thing that was illegal in the state of Massachusetts and in the Commonwealth of uh, Pennsylvania in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Well, and so let me just then highlight kind of two moves here. One is simplification and the other is reversal. And I'll deal with these kind of in reverse order. So so if you're reversing the reversal, is that a straightforward approach? <laughs> exactly. So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was enacted by Congress because a minority religious practice, in this case the Native American religious practice of peyote eating, was being infringed upon by the Supreme Court decision in Employment Division v. Smith. And so RIFRA was passed to protect minority religious practice. Now, 30 years later, we see that it is being used not to protect minority religion, but instead to protect, just as you've said, the kind of hegemony of majority religion, the ability of majority religion to impose its morality and its views on others. So it's a reversal of the intention of RIFRA that's being defended here. And there's a simplification, and that is exactly what you said, the reduction of this very complex set of issues around religious practice in a pluralistic society is reduced to a simple question of can we ban abortion or not? Can we enact our legislation and our policies at workplaces to ban abortion or not. And we see this also in the most recent USCCB kind of reiteration that abortion is the most important, if, if the, the sine qua non issue that all others kind of fall to. And I think a lot of Catholics and a lot of religious people are, are wanting to say the issues in our culture are much more complex than that. That's right. And it's and it goes beyond abortion. That That is obviously one of the, the hottest potatoes out there. But 
this is also something that's been invoked particularly around Catholic lobbying against equal protection for same-sex couples, marriage, you know, it's also something with regard to healthcare access to contraceptives. I mean, there are a number of other kind of tentacles that are tied to this that, that extend beyond abortion. And I think that's important to realize that, you know, as you've rightly said, it's been a reversal of the intention of the, of the law itself, but it's also, it's disingenuous. And I think that's where, if, if I may just, just highlight a contrast, listeners of, of our podcast know, you know, obviously that I, I'm on faculty at Catholic Theological Union. Um, you, you would work there for some time and, and adjunct there occasionally, you know, it, what listeners may not know is what a diverse and international, what a real global student body we have. And it's because we educate, in addition to lay women and men, members of men's and women's religious communities who are in formation. And so there are people from all over the world that come to study in Chicago to prepare for ministry or to do sabbaticals and so forth. And a number of them come from places like mainland China. They come from places like Vietnam. They come from places like certain Central and South American countries that have had histories of oppressive regimes and dictatorships. Some come from Eastern Europe. And it's deeply insulting. I mean, insulting is a superficial way or an understatement of, of addressing how offensive it is for people like, you know, uh, Attorney General Barr or certain bishops in the United States and others in the context of the United States to claim victimhood or persecution or being under attack under the guise of religious liberty when that is, it is just not true, not for Roman Catholics in the United States, period. And just to add to that, so I have, I worked in the communications department for a period of time at CTU. And one of the things that we had serious conversations about around graduation was what aspects of graduation could be broadcast on things like Facebook Live because we had students for whom participation in a seminary was an act that they or their families could be punished for. And so there are definitely people who are under serious and real persecution. And I, I very much appreciate your highlighting this, that a the inconvenience of a majority religion to not be able to have hegemony in America is not the same as religious persecution. And this is something that I want to kind of uh, pivot to, and that is, you know, William Barr going to Notre Dame and talking about his religious beliefs as a Catholic and how that interfaces with the culture. I've got no problem with that. The difficulty that I have is that he seemed to not be able to realize that he also was standing there as the Attorney General of the United States, and that he has a responsibility to the plurality that we have in this country, that he is the representative of the legal interests of all the people and not just his particular interest group. Yeah, I wonder sometimes, is it a concerted effort? You know, are there folks, I remember back in the early aughts, during the George W. Bush administration, a lot of uh, conversation about the rise of neocons and the kind of theocons, they were called, too. This was, you know, kind of the, the first things wing of Catholics, but, but the focus was more on a, a sort of George W. Bush evangelical coalition. And in, in an effort, wh whether it was the amendments to kind of oppose same-sex marriage or these sorts of things that were happening in 2004, 2006, that kind of stuff— I, I wonder sometimes, and, I, and I'm not partly because it's so infuriating when I think about like the example you raised, people that I actually know, you know, people who are risking their lives for the faith, who are actually persecuted in their home countries and, and take that risk to practice openly or sometimes covertly their own Christianity, their own Catholicism. It's hard for me to get beyond the, the, the offensive front of somebody like Bill Barr or I think of Archbishop Laurie in Baltimore, who is this fortnight for freedom nonsense that is, again, a disrespectful guise. You can talk about how you oppose these things in a public setting and in a public square or how you, you know, want to exercise religious freedom in your own institution, but don't claim to be persecuted. Don't claim to be under attack. So anyways, as you can tell, I'm already making myself a tangent here. What I wanted to say was, is this just a self-righteousness of an individual sort, do you think, like – the, the self-assuredness of somebody like Bill Barr or something like that? Or is it like a desire, maybe, a, a you know, I, you'd never be able to get somebody like Barr acknowledging this on the record, but is there a desire, do you think, of some, let's just talk about these Catholics, who, who want like a theocracy? Well, and so let me draw us back to another quotation from Barr's talk at Notre Dame. 
And he says, quote, the problem is not that religion is being forced on others. The problem is that irreligion and secular values are being forced on people of faith, unquote. This is a basic misunderstanding of what we have understood the role of American government to be. And the role of American government is designed to be secular, not as an ideology that is anti-religious, but rather as a neutral space where people can enter that space as the people that they are and argue their ideas. I interviewed in the first season of Things Not Seen an academic by the name of Jacques Berlinerblau, and he's done a lot of work on the notion of secularity in American culture. It's an important concept because it allows for a playing field where it is possible to say that the person who believes in 50 gods and the person who believes in the one true God can have a conversation without having to bring out weapons against each other. Well, and this is where the work, you know, I one of my closest friends is a political theorist. And so I, you know, I hear a lot through him, but this is like the Rawlsian stuff or the Jürgen Habermasian stuff where you talk about, you know, once you establish that, you know, this, this space that you're describing, you know, we can call it the secular, but, but a, a public square, basically, once that's established as a place where all are welcome, then the question is, how do you dialogue? What is the language you use across these different traditions? And, and that's an open debate. That's an ongoing kind of thriving and important conversation. But this circles back to your question from a moment ago, and that is, there are some whose interest is to absolutely shut down that marketplace of ideas and that public square in favor of a Christian and, in certain cases, a Catholic majority or a, a Catholic authority that simply says we have a list of banned books, we have a list of banned ideas, and if you say those things, then you will be punished. If you entertain those ideas, you will be punished. But if you play within the boundaries that we've set up, you'll be okay. That is, by definition, a theocracy, and that is kind of antithetical to the American experiment. And ironically, it's the same people who are perhaps inclined to desire that and to advocate for it that are the same ones that are running around screaming about the boogeyman of Sharia law, you know, this fear of, a, of an Islamic theocracy, yet they're, they, they seem to want to impose exactly this, sort of their understanding of a Christian equivalent. I keep thinking of splinters and eyes and logs and eyes. Well, yeah, and those, those who would yell about theocracy getting in the way of our legal system, they have to understand that every Catholic diocese has, has a tribunal, and the tribunal adjudicates marriage and marriage annulment, that is an example of religious law living alongside what, for want of a better word, secular law or general law. And we, we have two centuries of this as an experiment working for Catholics and for other people of Christian religious faith. So there's nothing inherently in Islamic law that would make it different from that kind of application. I also think, so we're, we're talking sort of more generally, and I, I know our segment's kind of uh, where we're at end, but I just want to highlight as well something that Professor Hackett said in, in the quotes that uh, I topped the segment with, which is he, he's not only being inaccurate or disingenuous perhaps with regard to the role he should be playing as a neutral political actor, as attorney general for the whole country, for all 330 million people, not just for Catholics or Catholics who think like him, but he's also inaccurate when it comes to Catholic theology and, you know, the view that's being espoused and articulated in his speech and the implications that follow thereafter might have fit more comfortably in 1950s Catholicism, but in part because of the 200-year-old-plus experiment of the United States and the existence of religious liberty in a peaceful context in a public square like this, and in the work of the Jesuit theologian John Courtney Murray, there was this was held up as an example that eventually changed and shifted the church's teaching on religious liberty and made it a fundamental human right. So it's not, it's no longer just a matter of constitutional principles or sort of American ideology. It's, it's about the Catholic church holds as a fundamental human right, the right to religious liberty. And this kind of imposition of a, of a particular Catholic way of viewing things violates the church's teaching. And if you're looking for a good backgrounder on this, in addition to Jacques Berlinerblau's excellent work, I'd also lift up the work of a Boston legal scholar, Jay Wexler, who wrote a book called Holy Hullabaloo's A Road Trip to the Battlegrounds of the Church-State Wars, which is as good a primer as I could recommend on the kind of ways in which American religious liberty has had a torturous and very complex and really interesting history in the last 200 years. So as we're bringing this conversation to a close, just want to lift up those kinds of resources to you in addition to the ones that, that Dan has just mentioned. So uh, with that, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and current events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Since June of this year, millions of protesters have been marching in the streets of Hong Kong in, a, in opposition to proposed fugitive offenders and mutual legal assistance in criminal matters legislation, which would amend Hong Kong law to allow for local authorities to arrest and potentially extradite residents of Hong Kong who are wanted in places with which Hong Kong does not currently have extradition agreements, including Taiwan and mainland China. The originating concern was that such an amendment to the law would subject Hong Kongers to unfair trials and treatment in China. Since Hong Kong was given back to mainland China in 1997 after a long history of being a British colony, it has enjoyed a distinctive degree of autonomy under a separate judicial system and with rights including freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. Fear of mainland Chinese encroachment led to the widespread protest, at times involving more than a million demonstrators. It has led to the revocation of the proposed legislation, but the protests persist as Hong Kongers seek several other goals, including independent investigations of alleged police brutality against the protesters and further guarantees of the legal rights considered under threat by protesters. As the protests have continued into the fall months, violence has increased, with police firing live rounds at demonstrators and protesters attacking police. With no sign of these anti-Chinese government protests dying down, what are we to make of this? Why is this something that Christians in general, and Americans in particular, should be concerned about? Well, to that last point, I, I think about Gaudium et Spes, the opening lines of the, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world from Vatican II, which says that the joys and hopes and the griefs and anxieties of the people of this age are the joys and hopes and griefs and anxieties of the people of God, that that we are concerned about any kind of injustice that takes place around the world. It, it's as much in a matter for us to be mindful of and, and to, to bring, you know, we're tied together within the broad human family, but especially within the Christian community all the more. And, and with that in mind, I find myself, and I don't know how you think about this, David, but I find myself at times really frustrated with the collective ADHD of society, that this has been going on for months. And and when it first began over the summer, there was a bit of media coverage. But then, you know, the, the media generally follows the shiny objects and people get bored with this. Oh, there's another thing happening over here. So I think it's worth just talking about bringing to consciousness, bringing again to the forefront of our listeners' minds and our own, that there are women and men who are risking their lives for the sake of democracy, for the sake of freedom. And as you mentioned, you know, Hong Kong has a very complicated history as, as, as for a number of centuries, really, as a British colony. And in 1997, as you mentioned, the land was turned back over to China. And it has this weird, this weird status, this quasi-autonomous status. It is part of China. And yet, at least through the agreement between the British and the Chinese was that at least through 2047, they would kind of continue to have the rights that they've always had, these, these rights that are not guaranteed in mainland China. And the biggest concern here with this proposed law was, was this idea that the Chinese government is trying to maybe slowly erode this autonomy, this freedom. And that's most demonstrated by the fact that there are things that, that the Chinese government does not like, including opposition or criticism, and for which they punish people with imprisonment, sometimes worse. And right now, you know, residents of Hong Kong can express you know, these liberties, they can express their own independent thought, they can raise criticism, concern. And you see that actually with the demonstrations and the Chinese government has been deeply, deeply frustrated by this and have taken some pretty extreme measures to, to try to combat that. And it's, it's not going away. Um, it's worth noting that the, the proposed law, the amendment that inaugurated this whole resistance, this whole protesting has been kind of taken off the table. But I think it's an interesting historical moment because the protests persist and I think they see a much bigger issue at stake, that that was just the tipping point. And, and the question is, what can be done to ensure the safety, the democracy, the freedom, the autonomy of these folks? Well, that's where I want to pick it up. And you talked about the ADHD, and I want to talk about a longer ADHD, because what's happening right now in Hong Kong lives in the shadow of what happened in 1989 in Tiananmen Square, and where several hundred or maybe several thousand protesters were killed in a violent suppression. 
And this is an ongoing difficulty with China. China is an authoritarian nation, and it has a narrative that it insists that not only its citizens, but also the world maintain. And we see this anytime that we saw this a few months ago with a basketball team where someone spoke out and suddenly it is as if, you know, NBA basketball in China was erased around this one team. So China has a draconian policy. It's always had a draconian policy about its narratives and it has a violent repressive policy about its citizens. So I want to pick up on what you just said, which is kind of how do we help to support the Hong Kong democracy movement? How do we help to foment democracy and free speech and those sorts of things? The policy of America around the time of Tiananmen Square and following was to grant a status that at the time was called permanent most favored nation trading status and is now called normal trading status. And so the the notion of America was we will simply open the gates of commerce and through commerce we will exert leverage upon this nation and we will help this nation to become more democratic and more open over time. And what we see now, 30, almost 40 years later, is it ain't working. No, it actually quite backfired because part of the leverage that China uses, and we saw this with the NBA kerfuffle that you you rightly mentioned, actually that was occasioned by the support of one of the professional team's managers of the Hong Kong protesters, was the, the kind of reciprocal that China has now this massive world economy. And as we see with the kind of arbitrary Trump tariff wars with China can can wreak very serious you know havoc for us and for the global economy, and and there's also questions too. I mean, the longstanding relationship that the United States has had with Hong Kong, both under British rule and now back with with China, I, I think I read in one report that there's something like a 37 billion dollar stake uh, on on the table in terms of trade with Hong Kong. This is not, I mean, it's much much larger. It's in the trillions of dollars when it comes to uh, to China. But that's that's not chump change. I think thirty-seven billion dollars is is a lot of money. Well, and so, and there's another layer to this as Catholics, and that is the fraught relationship of the Catholic Church around the ability to pick its own bishops in China as well. So no matter how you look at this, there's a question of how do we engage with this particular culture that has such a an insulated notion about its own narratives and is is willing to use both economic and military force against its own citizens and, if necessary, I would imagine, against against what it would perceive to be a threat externally to try and, and make that narrative sustain. So how do we engage with that? Well, it's a good question. And, and I wonder, I don't have an answer, but I have a follow-up question, <laughs> which is is maybe worth a thought exercise. You know, if we were policy advisors to either the Chinese, to the Hong Kong local government, or to U.S., State Department officials. I mean, what 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 do you think? You know, if you had the kind of power, just a kind of blank slate. What is the proposal? What's the answer? Because part of me is like, you know, British colonization is not good, but also this you know kind of decline of autonomy and freedom as they're getting reabsorbed back into mainland China is also not good. <laughs> so let me let me take that in two ways because there is, I think, a naive Western narrative, and that is everybody loves our democracy. Everybody loves the way that we order our affairs. And if we just expose people to the way that we order our affairs and maybe sweeten the pot with some blue jeans and some televisions, everyone's going to be happy and want to become like we are. That's called the Neil Diamond diplomacy. (laughs) Forever in blue jeans. Exactly. The counter to that that China brings is we're doing fine. We've been an established civilization for six thousand years. We don't need you to teach us how to be civilized. We don't need you to teach us how to get involved in government affairs. We were thinking about the proper arrangement of government affairs at the time of Confucius. We have it pretty well figured out. We know how to create harmony and order. And so there's a battle of narratives. And I hate to, I hate to sort of think in those kind of, those kind of Cold War terms, but there really is this sense that, you know, the American narrative that we're simply the best rah-rah, that's not going to work in this particular situation. And so whatever kind of engagement, if we were advising either side, I think if we were advising the American side, it would be don't trust the power of your blue jeans. You're going to actually have to engage with the fact that China as a culture has a stability and has a legitimacy 
that it looks it looks in the mirror and it sees itself and it says we're fine. Intervention in nation building from the U.S.'s uh, standpoint has never worked. It didn't work in the 80s in Central and South America. It didn't work in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now uh, in the Middle East uh, or in Africa. It, Yeah, I mean, we could go on. The list continues. Eastern Europe, uh, the fall of the wall, um, you know, there have been problems after problems after problems. So I think that's right. And I think that's good advice that there are other ways, first and foremost, of running one's government, organizing a people and so forth, that American democracy isn't itself the best or the only way. The concern I have, though, is the rights of, of all human beings to, let's say, assemble, to express themselves, to practice their faith, as we talked about in the previous segment, and so forth. I think those things ought to be inalienable. And what do you do when you know, when, when that is circumscribed or suppressed, as is the case in China? And what I think, you know, as I understand the energy behind the uprising and continued protests is that these, this is a population of people who have enjoyed these privileges, you know, certainly under British rule and in this interim time. And, you know, once you taste it, once you know it, you do not want to lose it. So it's a defensive and I think a righteously defensive mode. But that's a very different situation. So I've got a beginning of an answer. So you asked, you know, how would we advise China? How would we advise America? Or how would we advise the Hong Kongers? And I've talked about China. It's got a sense that it's it's fine. America has a sense that it's got the master narrative. And so the real action, I think, is in the Hong Kong moment. That's right. And and because Hong Kong is what we might call a twilight space or a marsh space. And let me explain what I mean by that. Or as the postmoderns would say, it's an interstitial space. Interstitial space, a liminal space. So it's it's between, if you will, the land and the sea. And in a marsh or in twilight between day and night, interesting things happen and new ecosystems emerge. It's the time when things exist that don't exist in the the kind of binary. And that's important for us because what is possible in Hong Kong right now is a way of navigating between these two entrenched narratives that might be a new thing. What does that require? I would suggest that that requires Jesuitical thinking. It requires uh, requires the application of a type of thinking that looks at the context of the situation and doesn't ask what is the principle that we can apply, but rather how can we... How can we adapt the principles that we know to this new thing? And forgive me for characterizing it as Jesuitical. There may be a better term within Catholic, but that's my go-to right now, a, a kind of Ignatian model. Yeah, I think the Ignatian reference is notwithstanding. I'll just move on. I think that that's interesting. It doesn't solve the problem yet because it still rests in the abstraction that I think is unhelpful because we have, uh, and I'm not saying that you're being unhelpful or deliberately so or anything like that. It's not a criticism because I think you're right in terms of how you're thinking through this. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that we have millions of people whose lives are at stake, yeah. people who are dying. And, you know, there there is kind of a pragmatic question that's at hand beyond an ideological question or a constitutional question. And that is, you know, the I word is independence the issue. Is that the real issue? I mean, can there be you know, because right now the this is sort of what the British have left off was this experiment for 50 years between 97 and 47, 2047, of them still, you know, of the Hong Kongers enjoying the kind of privileges, rights, uh, you know, access that they had before while while technically being under the control of China. And, and I, I don't know how long that's going to last. Can it last? Well, and so here's the problem, because the Hong Kongers are thinking, we want to dialogue and be put our lives on the line so that something new might be created in this situation. The Chinese on the other side are thinking simply, we wait this out and then you become us again because that's the only possible solution and that's the right way. Well, until June, that was the policy. That yeah. was the plan. But I think, you know, and and we saw this in September and October when the, when the violence sort of escalated. You saw in August when they, they took over the, the airport, the protesters, you know, the Chinese, you know, the reports were that they were deeply, deeply frustrated because they're like, what we normally do to suppress these kinds of things are not working. And the more this lingers, you know, the more difficult it is for us to do this kind of wait and, and we'll just take you over sort of thing. And we don't have time to bring it up now, but I just want to say I see an analogy here between the Chinese approach and the Hong Kong approach. I see a parallel to what's going on right now in the American church with the bishops. I see the bishops having a notion of 
we have the right way and we're just going to wait you out until all of this, all this childish nonsense ends and then you'll come back into the right way of doing things. Whereas the people on the other side are like, we're trying to work with you and talk with you to think about a new way of moving forward. That's and interesting. That's yeah. the impasse that I, I would love at some point for us to come back and think about that impasse more in light of kind of what we're seeing on the global stage, because I think there are parallels. I, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, the stakes are very different. The context are very different. But it is, I appreciate that. It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, I, I would say, though, maybe in both cases, maybe there isn't a singular right way, but there are wrong ways. And I, and I think... Say more about that. Well... I don't want to, <laughs> because because I, I think you're right. We we don't have time to do it today, and and we should really focus. I, I want to think about this a little bit more, and and uh, and I think it is worth revisiting, because, yeah, I don't think there's a singular right right way to do things, but but there are there are wrong ways, and and it is wrong when the Chinese government is trying to crush the the freedoms of a of a population it is wrong to you to carry through with your analogy of of just a moment ago it is wrong when certain religious leaders individual catholics catholic leaders etc think that there's a singular way to do things and it's my way the highway you know this this harkens back to our earlier segment on bill barr but i don't want to i don't want to kind of promulgate a singular way saying that there's only one right way um i don't know i there's more to be said about that for sure but i think that's where i'm comfortable leaving it for now. I think that's prudent and I appreciate the caution. I appreciate I, it's it's not really caution. I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm kind of editing myself. I just don't I haven't given it much thought until you raised it. So right on. To be continued. Well with that, let's go ahead and end uh and end this segment. You're listening to the Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, a Franciscan Jedi, and I'm here with my friend, Dr. David Dalt of The Empire. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about Vader, we talk about Kylo Ren, we talk about the Emperor, we talk about the Force, and we talk about, as we will right now, Yoda and Yoda-adjacent creatures. <laughs> In November, the streaming service Disney Plus premiered a new series called The Mandalorian, and if you haven't watched it, then just turn this off. Just kidding. You can keep listening. But we may be referring to things that you have not yet seen or heard. And so this is our spoiler warning. Okay, back to the program. It's set in the Star Wars universe. The series is created and directed by the popular filmmaker John Favreau. That's the older uh, John Favreau, not to be confused with the younger John Favreau, former speechwriter for President Obama and co-founder of the Crooked Media Pod Save America Enterprise. So The Mandalorian is set up to be a kind of space western, which in all fairness is what all the Star Wars series is in a, in a way. And it borrows a lot of ideas and images from classic spaghetti westerns like A Fistful of Dollars and Pale Rider. Even the music, the scenes, the shooting, it all kind of has that uh, ambiance of the spaghetti westerns. The title character, The Mandalorian, is a bounty hunter. He rounds up living cargo for cash. And at the end of the second episode, named The Child, we learn that the bounty the Mandalorian has been hired to deliver is in fact this child. Um, but it's not just any child. It's a baby Yoda? Question mark. It's a baby of whatever species Yoda is. And we're not really sure what that is because it's, uh, it's unnamed. Yoda was at least until very recently sui generis. To put it mildly, Christian Twitter went bananas. For several days, there were debates raging about whether or not it would be proper to baptize this young creature. And you have to know that it's because this creature is so adorable. There, are no, there is no cat meme or even baby human that appears to be as cute as this one is. So I'm sorry to all the newborns out there. You've got a lot of work to do. Turn green, age 50 years, look like a little baby, and get big pointy ears. Now, in 2014, Pope Francis is on record saying he would be willing to baptize an alien, which sounds like a non sequitur, except this is a long-standing theological question, which we we're about to get into. And even in, 20, in 2010, Pope Benedict also said he would baptize aliens if they asked to receive the sacrament. So, while Baby Yoda is a fiction, needless to say, this raises a lot of questions. So, David, kick us off. What should we be thinking about with this? Well, so... 
Catholic Twitter. I mean, Catholic Twitter is an it's interesting— It's the best of times. It's, it is the worst of times. <laughs> and not just Catholic Twitter, but, but also sort of Christian Twitter generally. And so Christian Twitter includes Reformed theologians. It includes Methodists. It includes soul competency Baptists. It includes a lot of people with a lot of opinions. And what I love about the, the Twitter-scape is that people sort of put these opinions forward kind of— simultaneously, half-jokingly, and really, really seriously. And so it led to some— And the bots can't tell the difference, yeah. so they, so the trolls get all worked up, too. And it led to these kind of interesting moments. And so so in the process of this, I will say that I was team baptized Baby Yoda. I, I'm absolutely in favor of baptizing infants for a lot of theological reasons, and I thought, well, this is an easy one. But then some people raised the issue of is it only proper to baptize humans because humans supposedly are the only ones with the Imago Dei? And or if you were to baptize baby Yoda, should you also bring in your pet and get your pet baptized? So those are the first two issues I want to raise. So is it only humans that are properly available for baptism? And if we accept baptizing non-human entities, should we also baptize our pets? And so I ask you, my Franciscan friend, these two questions. So I see that and raise it. Because I had a professor in undergrad who's a, whose background was she, she had a doctorate in theology, but also was a computer scientist and for a time worked on the artificial intelligence research team at MIT as, believe it or not, a theological advisor, somebody who also has this background. I want that job. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, she, she wrote a book, a book that was published. Gosh, the name of it escapes me right now, but I'll have to look it up to give to you and maybe we can link to it, where she basically engages this question, but about robots. Can you baptize, you know, if we talk about artificial intelligence, can we baptize robots if they become sentient, right? So whether that's from like the Spielberg movie AI or whether it's one of these other more recent films where where there's kind of inorganic life, as it were, it's not carbon-based, but there's sentience, there's there's consciousness. That raises another question that speaks also to what you were saying. So you were talking about species limitations in baptism, which is which is a question of its own. But there's also the the artificial intelligence question raises this point about what is distinctive about the human that merits its singular baptismal or potentially baptized status. And the artificial intelligence approach is, again, this Aristotelian notion of rationality, that a human person is a rational animal and that our rationality is what best embodies and articulates the Imago Dei. But we would be completely legitimate if we were to baptize someone who didn't, didn't demonstrate language or faculties in that sense. So someone who was, who was autistic, someone who was vegetative, would, the, would it be legitimate to baptize a person in those circumstances. Certainly in the Catholic Church, we would say that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's not a problem. It becomes a problem for folks in denominations and traditions that, that see a kind of intellectual ascent as necessary for baptism. So they're the same kind of folks, whether they're radical Anabaptists, or I mean, there's a whole range today when you look at certain evangelical communities about, you know, needing to choose Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that sort of rhetoric presupposes what Thomas Aquinas would call the age of reason. And in the Catholic Church in the West, we do this too, but we do it with regard to the what we call the 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 rites of initiation, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's a singular rite that's composed of three sacraments, baptism, communion, and confirmation. And we've separated them in the Latin West, in the Roman Church, and we do this kind of predication of the age of reason being around seven years old, which is something, again, it's an 800-year tradition. And so that, you know, kids basically are admitted to communion once they can theoretically know the difference between consecrated bread and, and table bread, that sort of stuff. I'll just say this, that's deeply problematic. <laughs> it's it's problematic for a trillion reasons. And our Eastern Catholic, our Eastern churches in communion with Rome, and as well as the Eastern Orthodox, get it right, which is they have not separated the rite of initiation, just like we don't for adults with the RCIA process. You get baptized, you receive communion, you're confirmed altogether. The same thing is true with the Eastern church, because they recognize there's something more than intellectual assent that has to do with one's relationship to God and the sacraments. Okay, so the, so we agree that as Catholics, we are not like our Anabaptist brothers and sisters in the sense that there, there needs to be something that they recognize and can, can articulate in the sacrament that makes the sacrament legitimate. Okay, but now let's talk about this notion of the Imago Dei. Like, is there something distinctly human in our species that makes 
baptism only required for humans. So, okay, that last point's exactly right, because you're asking an interesting question, but not the most important question until you get to that second part of what you just said, which is, it, it evokes this question, what is the purpose of baptism? You know, why, why baptize any infant? Why baptize a baby Yoda or, or a, an artificially intelligent robot or something like that? And for that, we need to go back to St. Paul. We need to go back to the early Christian church and understand what is the purpose of baptism. And this is, again, where we in the Latin West have, have gone a bit astray thanks to some things that happened in the Middle Ages in terms of the theological inquiry and then things that kind of got locked down at Trent. And our disproportionate emphasis on sin in the Latin West, in the Roman Church, and that the, if you ask most people, you need to baptize a person as soon as possible after birth because there's the possibility they might die, and if you're not baptized, you don't get to heaven. Why? Because even though you're not yet exercising agency, you're not volitional uh, as an infant, you know, you're not kind of planning bank robberies or lying to the police or, you know, sinning in overt ways, you nevertheless are affected by, by virtue of birth, by virtue of being human, affected by original sin. And so baptism wipes us away from original sin, although not the effects of original sin, frees us from that, which is all true and good. But um, it has, that has been basically the singular focus of the purpose of the sacrament of baptism for the last 800 to about 1,000 years in the Latin West. The problem with that is it's not the primary purpose. It's not even really the main point. The main point of baptism is incorporation into the body of Christ, the communion of saints. And so if we think about belongingness as the main purpose of this, then we can begin to think about sentient robots, baby Yodas, as having the capacity for wishing to belong. All right, so then now let me ask the second question, because there are many people who feel like their pets are a part of their families, and they would want incorporation of their pets into this belongingness, and so should pets be baptized? And if not, why not? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like that's a... There's no there's no good answer to that question at present because of of something that's presupposed in the question, which is an assumption about the meaning of well about our place within the cosmos, our place within God's community of creation, our understanding of revelation, our understanding of God's relationship to humanity, a misunderstanding or a narrowing of the effect and and purpose and intention of the incarnation. Uh, having to do only with humanity and not the rest of creation, for instance. I mean, so it opens a lot of que- a lot of additional questions. I would I would just simply say right now that we do not baptize non-humans, you know, in the church, and and part of that has to do with our understanding of participatory nature of sacramental life in the church. Whether we should or could is an interesting question. And it's worth thinking about, but it requires us going deeper. As you're implying, we need to go back to questions like, what does Imago Dei mean? What does humanity mean? What does it mean to be a human person? I mean, these are questions that are all very interesting to me. And I mean, I literally just wrote a book on this. But um, yeah, I don't know. Well, these are also belongingness questions. So if we look at 1 Corinthians 1 or if we look at Acts 16, we see entire households being baptized into the church. And so the question would be, not just what does individual belongingness mean, but what does it mean for this unit that sees itself as a unit to become belonging to the church? And so now let's turn this out to alien creatures. Okay, so is it possible that Christ's sacrifice on the cross and Christ's redemptive love and Christ's work in the world extends beyond the human? Well, we yes. we assert that, absolutely. Yes. Well, and it goes back to the incarnation, you know, the the patristic theologians, the early church fathers, East and West, you know, had to face this question heads on, and it had to do within the human family with regard to gender. So, you know, the Word became flesh, as we believe in the Incarnation, right? God became human as Jesus of Nazareth, a first-century Palestinian male Jew. So the question is, well, does his maleness, is is that characteristic distinctive? And if it's so, if that becomes important, then women are not saved. They, they have this expression, you know, what is not assumed is not saved. And, and they torpedo that right away and say, no, obviously women 
are saved by Christ's act of incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. But then we take that a step further, too, because, you know, actually the word taking on flesh isn't merely humanness in general. It's the particularity of embodiment, corporeality, sarks meaning the kind of matter, the fleshy material, the corporeality of, of this world. And so, or in Hebrew, the ahadamah. And so when the word becomes flesh, Christ takes on creatureliness, too. And therefore, Paul can say with confidence in the eighth chapter of the letter to the Romans that all of creation is yearning for this day of salvation. And Irenaeus of Lyon can say that all of creation is, is, you know, that creation and salvation are two sides of the same coin, that it's a Trinitarian act of creation and it's a Trinitarian act of salvation, and God will bring all of creation to glory back to God's self. So on the one hand... Yeah, that has to be taken into consideration. So if if there are extraterrestrials, if there are non-Earth-based life forms, they too are saved through Christ. Christ is the one Savior for all the cosmos, as all is created, you know, again, letters to Colossians, all is created in him, through him, unto him, that would include aliens. Now the question is, would alien creatures in whatever form they may be, whether super, super, super cute little baby Yodas or some kind of scary close encounters of the third kind, you know, are they created in the image of God? You know, in the same way that the question about our family pets or whether we talk about other creatures on this planet, are they created in the image of God? You know, spoiler alert, I make the case, at least in my last two books, that yes, there's a way in which we can say that. And that it does not flatten creation to say that human beings are the same as earthworms or something like that in terms of valuation or respect and dignity. It just means to say that who are we to say that earthworms don't have an immediate relationship to their creator in the same way that we do, or in an analogous way is a better way to put it, that we do. And so who is to say that aliens don't already have some kind of relationship to to God, and maybe it's a better relationship than we have. That was certainly Francis of Assisi's perspective, that we human beings are pretty bad (laughs) because of our sinfulness, because of the effects of original sin and our self-centeredness and so forth. We're pretty bad at relating to God, to being Christ-like, whereas other creatures are are sometimes much better at it. Like the sun as an entity, as a a, literally a creature, a, a creation of God, as a star, is better at being what God created it to be than we are at being human. So I, I'm thinking about seven, eight hundred years ago and the the arguments between someone like Copernicus and Tycho Brahe. Okay, so Tycho Brahe rejected the notion that the Earth was not the center of everything and because he said, one, it would make the stars too far away and it would make the distances and the voids too great and God God would be the God of mostly emptiness and not solidity. All right, and so... God is the God of dark matter. Yeah, <laughs> but the church in the intervening centuries has become more comfortable with the idea of a non-Earth-centric universe, a non-Earth-centric cosmos, and in a, in a sense, a non-human-centered cosmos, and that's partly what you're... Well, I... Well, I, I I would stop there. Yeah. Because I don't think that's true. Okay. I think the way you're framing that is the way it ought to be. Okay. And it is a natural, like there's an internal logic and a progression that makes sense there. But we haven't actually taken that leap. Okay. And this is this is one of my crit- critiques. It's It's that of a lot of folks who are engaged, for instance, in theology and science, which is on the one, you know, we're kind of speaking out of both sides of our mouths as the church institutional, which is on the one hand, and we see this in Laudato Si, on one hand, we affirm the goodness of creation. We recognize that evolution is real, that that the cosmos has been in existence for 14 billion years at least, that it's expanding, et cetera. And yet, on the other side of the mouth, it's like, but we're the only thing that matters. Mm. So there, it, you can, it is, I would argue, a, a contradictory thought process, but nevertheless, it's one we maintain right now of, yes, a non-Earth-centric you know, uh, from a heliocentric onward kind of realistic understanding of the cosmos and a, a kind of in deeply ingrained anthropocentrism. So, you know, the way I oftentimes think about it is Christianity is by definition an anthropocentric religion. That's not a problem necessarily, except when it starts to infringe on the, on the truths, the realities, the experiences of the rest of the cosmos. And we see that most painfully in, in global climate crises and, and ecological, you know, devastation and that sort of thing. But no, right now there is this little bit of impasse that exists between those two, those two ways of thinking. Well, and 
so what I love about this conversation is that even though it is kind of beginning in pop culture and we began kind of joking about that, there are very serious issues about these questions that are raised by this. And you've pointed both in your in your recent books, as you've said, but also in this conversation to places where we as the church in our census fidelium can help the church to grow and can help the church to mature in some ways towards a more inclusive, a more global, if I may take a word from you, a more Catholic way of thinking about the Imago Dei. Yeah, and if in, with regard to this question of baptism or the existence of extraterrestrials or whether they're, you know, whether it's only the human species in, in 14 billion years of the existence of the of the universe that, that matters, that God is in relationship to, I, I'd point to a resource, and, and I can't think of the title of the book right now, but it's by the Dominican theologian Thomas O'Meara, who was a longtime professor at the University of Notre Dame. He's retired now. And again, he's a Dominican. He's a through and through Thomist. He, he always gets really worked up whenever I'm around and I mention SCOTUS. He gets all, all flustered. But he, he's very fascinated by this question and has written several articles that have, that have appeared in top journals like Theological Studies. But he also wrote a, a book, the name of which, again, I, escapes me, but um, I'm sure we'll have it. Maybe we can put a link up to the uh, show notes where he asks this question about, okay, if aliens exist, what is their relationship to God? What is their potential relationship to sacraments and so forth? And again, this is not some kind of like out in, pun intended, out in outer space way of thinking. He's somebody who's deeply invested in, in Thomism and the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Well, and I just want, as a way of wrapping this up, to say if you're interested in these questions that are raised, I, I can't recommend highly enough your recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood. I learned so much about these questions from reading that, and I think our listeners will too. But this may be a good place for us to leave the conversation. This is uh, this has been, I think, my favorite segment in a long time, <laughs> and I hope that we get a chance in next season to do more kind of pop culture stuff, because this is a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, and thanks for the shout-out uh, for the book. And a recommendation to our listeners that if you have Disney+, Plus, um, it is... It's a really, really good show. I mean, the quality is is on par with the rest of the Star Wars universe so far. Well, and with that, uh, thank you for listening to The Francis Effect. We'll, we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they are wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a comment or question, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. Effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, we're glad that you're here. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from all of our seasons, and thank you for listening.